and that most often it's very smart people, but they're 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 not measuring the right thing. It's、mm. like trying to drive a car without a speedometer. Right. You could you can get some idea how fast you're going and do some judgment, but you'll never have any precision and you'll never be consistent unless you put a speedometer in there so you can see, measure literally how fast you're going. Welcome to the Etna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety and technology share knowledge and experiences and discuss events and trends in food safety. Here's your host, Dr. Peter Teramina. Bob Hansen founded Hansen Tech in 2006 with the aim of providing the meat industry with independent, unbiased guidance on cooking, smoking, and chilling processes. Bob has worked on thermal processing equipment for over 20 years, finding ways to make products safer, better, and faster. He's delivered technical know-how on thermal processing to meat processors around the world through presentations at industry short courses, scientific conferences. And he has also authored numerous articles and book chapters on cooking, smoking, and cooling. Bob earned a master's degree in meat science from Iowa State University, a bachelor's degree in agricultural engineering technology from University of Minnesota, and an MBA from the University of Wisconsin. For his master's thesis, Bob studied heat and mass transfer in meat products during cooking. So, very pleased. To welcome Bob Hansen. Bob, how are you today? Hi, Peter. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Really appreciate you、uh, taking the time to do this podcast, and I'm looking forward to learning, as I often do when I see you lecture, more more about、uh, cooking and thermal dynamics of cooking meat. All right. Oh, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, great. So、um, I guess we could kind of jump into.、Um, Uh, just talk to us a little bit about、uh, what are some of the what are some of the dynamics that occur in cooking a typical meat product,、um, like with respect to、uh, heat transfer and then humidity or moisture by volume and things like that. Well, probably the key thing to remember is that the product has moisture in it, and the moisture evaporates at the wet bulb temperature. So, so if you look at forced air convection cooking. You've got all forced air convection cooking has four variables. Whether it's an impingement oven, a spiral oven, a, a, a big smokehouse, whether it takes two minutes or or twelve hours, you still have the same four variables that underlie all forced air convection thermal processes, and that's dry bulb temperature, wet bulb temperature, air velocity, and time. And those four variables then control how fast the product dries and cooks, how the color develops, how the flavor develops, everything that we're trying to do. Happens because of one of those four variables and adjusting one of those four variables. So, as I started with, or as I led with, the big thing to remember is whether you're in an impingement oven, or a or a big smokehouse, or you're cooking in your home oven or in the backyard. The moisture in the product is coming up to the surface and evaporating at the wet bulb temperature. The wet bulb temperature is literally measuring the temperature the moisture is evaporating in the oven. And that actually dates clear back to my master's research. And the reason that's so important is that this is not just a heat transfer process. It's a heat and mass transfer process, and the mass is the moisture that's evaporating from the product, and that really controls the surface temperature, which ultimately controls how fast the product cooks, how fast it dries, how much smoke is absorbed, how much color is developed. Everything that we're looking for, from、uh, either food safety, quality, or production aspects, is really dictated by 
that surface temperature, which ultimately is controlled by the wet bulb temperature. So that's the key point that, that you always have to remember with all these products is there's only four variables. And then you need to think about which one of those four variables you're going to adjust to get it, the product to do what you want it to do. And just for the benefit of those listening, when you go out into the meat industry and poultry industry and you look at cook systems, which cook systems cover all four of those parameters the easiest and which systems are the most difficult to deal with? Yeah. Well, the simplest ones of all are actually are, are just straight up heat transfer processes, which would be hot water cooking and steam cooking. And so that's mm-hmm. the simplest of them. And the hot water and, and steam from a thermodynamic standpoint are virtually the same. The The steam actually has a higher heat transfer coefficient, but both of them have such high heat transfer uh, capabilities that they, they, they function pretty much the same. So in that case, it's just a pure heat transfer situation because there is no evaporation. So the, the water hot water contacts with the surface of the meat or the steam contacts with the surface of the meat and the heat and that heat, that heat then is transferred from the surface to the core. Um, so those are the simplest. Then the more complicated ones would be all the, the free and forced convection processes where you've got air involved. So that can be anything from your backyard grill, which is a free convection system to a, a you know, high velocity forced air convection system like an impingement oven. But typically in the industry, you'd be talking about impingement ovens spiral ovens, uh, and smokehouses. That'd be the three types of forced air convection systems. Now, microwave is a different animal completely because now you're transferring heat through, through microwaves, which is different. So, so what I focus on mostly is the forced air convection systems, which on the short side are impingement ovens, which might have cooking times of anywhere from two to 12 minutes to smokehouses, which might take you know 12 or 14 hours if you're cooking bone in hams or something like that. Right. And so we're talking about all this, these thermal dynamics of getting heat to the product. We've kind of skipped over the whole point of this. And, you know, what speak to the purpose of devising these parameters just right? What is our target in terms of cooking besides the quality yeah. of the product at the end? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there's three. Every processor that makes pre-cooked meats has three goals. The, the food safety. You've got a threshold of food safety that you have to exceed. Mm-hmm. quality and there's an optimal quality you're shooting for and that's an optimum so it's not a threshold anymore now it's an optimum it's a target of particular quality specifications for that product whether it's color flavor texture um, skin development what have you and then the third thing of course is you need to produce it profitably so food safety obviously you need to meet that threshold of food safety then you need to meet the quality specifications without compromising food safety and then you need to meet your production goals for that product so that you're producing it profitably without compromising quality and without compromising food safety. So it sort of mm-hmm. a, rolls up like that with food safety being our top line objective. And then it follows that you, you meet the quality specifications at a production rate that's profitable. It's often said that food safety in the meat industry, especially for those who are members of the North American Meat Institute, that food safety is not a competitive issue. But in those three different target outcomes you're looking for food safety attainment quality performance and then profitability two of those three are not are are definitely competitive aren't they yeah yeah very much so and and of course if you can reduce your costs you you put yourself in a better position competitively and so so people have that goal if you can maintain a more consistent quality or actually achieve some sort of a quality characteristic that's hard for, for other companies to achieve, then, then you, mm-hmm. you can have a competitive edge through quality um, or a competitive edge through cost. And of course, companies compete both through differentiation, which would be more the quality type things or, 
or through through cost, just trying to be the lowest cost provider, which would be more on the cost side. But even if people are trying to differentiate through quality, they still have to have an eye on cost. Of course, the lower the cost is, the better footing you're on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also wanted to say that, you know, I've seen you present in a number of places. And of course, we've served on some committees together. I always love how you be, you're able to bring this. It's really a complex and dynamic um, situation in terms of these parameters of cooking and you bring it into a, into a point that's really, you bring the salient points out and make it clear to understand what's sort of your philosophy behind how you approach this and as a consultant in your business, how you help these companies. What's, what's behind your uh, approach, if any, if you could speak to that. Well, yeah, I've, I've been lucky. I've been doing this for over 30 years now and I, yeah. and I, I studied it in graduate school. So, hmm. so I was lucky, first of all, that I bring two disciplines in both my master's degree, which is in meat science and, and bachelor's degree in agricultural engineering. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the advantage of having the agricultural engineering technology degree is, of course, I, I learned thermodynamics. And so I was able to combine that in a, in a study that I did at Iowa State for my master's thesis that I really carried on since then. And so the, the, the key thing is really what I led with was that there's, there's really only four variables. You've got dry bulb temperature, wet bulb temperature, air velocity time. So how are we going to manipulate those variables to do whatever it is we want to do, whether it's, whether it's improved throughput, improved yield, um, make sure we're meeting food safety thresholds or optimizing quality through smoke color. Now, the other one variable that comes in there, though, that, that, that you can't ignore is, okay, you've got these four thermodynamic variables, but you also are applying smoke. And, of course, a lot of the products we make are smoked meats, and so developing smoke color and flavor is a key, uh, is, is another, is, it's an additive that's being brought in during the cooking process either through liquid smoke or, or traditional smoke. And, um, and we're, we're again manipulating those four variables to get the smoke to do what we want it to do, whether we want it to absorb or whether we want it to develop color or whether we want it to develop flavor. It, but it's still the same four underlying variables, and that's just what you have to keep going back to. And that's what keeps it simple is you just – it's actually, as you said, it's even just four variables is quite dynamic. And then we've got this myriad range of products that we're cooking, right, everything from chicken nuggets to – Mm-hmm. chicken tenders to bone in hams and, and, and cellulose casing hot dogs. And there's a number of different objectives we have to try and achieve. It's one thing, j- just, just to take one example, it's one thing to make um, frankfurters to the right color and flavor and texture and meet the threshold of food safety. But if you can't peel them, if it's a peeled product, you can't peel it, well, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good. And so that hurts mm-hmm. your number one first pass product. So there's other objectives besides just the, the uh, the food safety and quality ones that, that, that impact production that aren't obvious. You know, you, you've got to make, there's some certain functional things. Sliceability is another good example where if you make a product that looks beautiful, it tastes great, but you can't get it to slice, mm-hmm. you know, then, then, and, and, and the thermal process affects that too. Netted products is another example. If, if you make a great looking product and when you peel the net, it tears the skin off, you know, mm-hmm. now you've lost all the, the smoke color and skin that you developed. So there's, mm-hmm. it, it, it seems very simple. There's just these four variables, but in fact, because those four variables and, and the huge number range of products that are made in the industry, you've got, um, you've got to keep driving down to what those four variables are doing to whatever it is we're trying to do, whether it's peel a net or, or develop color or absorb smoke or, or, you know, cook the product faster. Mm, indeed. Yeah. I think uh, I've lived that at times for much of my career. I've worked for a major meat processing company. My office was across the hall from our corporate test kitchen and I can remember very well-known brand of hot dogs. Um, they spent, I guess, probably a year 
to get the, the, the hot dog links color and texture and bite and everything else just absolutely right. Very, very long and complex um, process, not to mention the, the human element of, of making those assessments of quality of, of performance of the product. Yeah, sensory, sensory analysis is so critical and having good, of course, that's not something I was trained in. So I always have to get get help in that area. But that sensory analysis is, is of course, a key part of it. Quality ultimately is, is, is highly subjective in a lot of ways. And so mm -hmm. being able to do the, the sensory analysis to make sure you've got it right is crucial. Yeah. When clients engage with you, uh, do you think normally it comes through food safety needs or quality product performance needs or both? I mean, what's... It's yeah no it's it's both and, and of mm -hmm. course it is if you think about it so so yeah. the very very straightforward food safety issue is 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 I'll be asked to do oven validations and an oven validation is to make sure that the oven is cooking up to the threshold of food safety throughout the whole oven and you you know it's the the, the temperature you're checking near the door mm. isn't necessarily the same as the temperature further into the oven so so that very basic level we'll do those oven validations and the next level up from that is is um, process lethality. So now, okay, we're cooking product to 158 degrees or 160 degrees or 175 degrees, and is mm -hmm. that lethal to the pathogen, this the target, which typically is, is lethal to seven logs of salmonella is typically what's looked for because that's what USDA specifies in Appendix A. So um, then that, so that process lethality, whether you're doing a bone-in ham that takes 12 hours to cook or a chicken nugget that takes two minutes to cook, You've got to determine what temperature do you need to cook to for what amount of time to make sure that it's lethal to seven logs of salmonella. Then from there, that's kind of the two major food safety areas that I work in. Um, but then from there, there's a, there's a huge range of process improvement um, projects, sure. which is probably about, uh, you know, half to three quarters of my business is process improvement things where you're trying to, uh, a lot of it's, it's just professional troubleshooting. You're trying mm -hmm. to solve a quality problem. You're trying to get more consistent smoke color, more consistent flavor, deeper smoke flavor. Mm -hmm. on, um, on some products and, and then, or try and help with a slicing problem or a peeling problem. Or um, I think probably fat separation is one of the bigger ones that, mm -hmm. that you work on too, just trying to, trying to solve fat separation problems and determine whether there's something that can be done on, on the oven side that, that can do that. That's like grease out. What's called. Yes, grease exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And so, so people are grease out rendering fat separation, mm -hmm. whatever the term is. So, that kind of greasing, especially on beef, is is something that's super frustrating. There's, mm. <laughs> when you look at, and you've you've lived this too, I'm sure. But when you look at continuous lines, mm -hmm. there's nothing that focuses your intensity quite like ten thousand pounds an hour of hot dogs that won't peel, or ten thousand pounds an hour of product that 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 is greasing out. It's just soul crushing to see that mm -hmm. happen. You've done all that work to make the stuff, and then it greases out. Now, the smokehouse isn't always the problem, but there is a lot of things that can be done to try and make the, the smokehouse process right. um, cook a wider range of products without greasing and, and peeling problems. Yes. And, and peeling problems, frankly, are almost always solvable by the smokehouse. And grease out sometimes are and sometimes aren't. But I like to try and design the processes to, to cook the widest range of products that we can. Mm -hmm. And then you don't have to worry so much about what's going on in the kitchen or what, what's being done with least cost formulation and so on. Yeah. But I would imagine that raw material quality plays into that even Oh, of course. Yeah. And, and of course there's, there's all kinds animal. of things for yeah the animal diet and also blending and, and, and order of addition of ingredients and all those things. But assuming all that's done, right. Mm -hmm. You want to try and try and do, there is no right. Right. But all those things are optimized. You try and optimize the smokehouse process to cook as many different formulas as you can. 
the fact is there's some formulas that are going to have lower quality raw materials in them. They have lower bind values. So can we cook them or can't we? And, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's, mm-hmm. there are things that can be done in the smokehouse to, to help, uh, processors cook a wider range of products than, than what they're doing. That's now. a huge then, value add to provide. I mean, companies are really looking for where can we, where can we really gain efficiency and open up options for us to use all kinds of raw materials on the open market to get the best possible margin yeah. out of the product. Yeah. Well, then you think of it from a business standpoint, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a technical guy, right. But, but from a business standpoint, if, if you can, then the solution if you can make adjustments to the airflow or, or, you know, one of the four variables, this process in some way to, to, to allow you to run more products, that's a huge return on investment Mm -hmm. because now you essentially have invested just some time in figuring this out. And now you've got equipment that can cook more products or cook the products. Um, And of course, other things I work on are just cooking faster at higher yields, um, preventing, and then higher first pass number one product, of course, helps your productivity too. That helps your throughput. So if you can prevent greasing, or solve peeling problems either with netting or, or uh, cellulose casings. You know those those things can help a lot, and, and the return on investment is huge because you're you're really just adjusting a process instead of having to add capital equipment or add product lines or or, or increase um, marketing costs on a product or some of the other investments you might make. And I imagine your your education background. You have the technical, and then you have the MBA. That helps you not only run your own business but also understand the the um, importance of seeing this whole big picture for food companies. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you can recognize what, what it is people are trying to do and, and how, how I might be able to help mm-hmm. um, and also help train their people on how they can help themselves, which is, which is a, a, a far overreaching goal that I have too. Yeah. Speaking of people, when you get into these facilities, you're working, I assume, with the operations team, with quality assurance teams, even, you know, production and general managers but inevitably I imagine you face situations where there's not alignment between these different groups of people and the things you're trying to set as parameters and control so that you can perform a test uh, must be a challenge in certain situations. Um, How do you go about that when you face a culture that's got a little bit of a uh, impulsiveness or. Well, they have to be, it has to be a highly collaborative project. And so Hmm. if if the, 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 the primary contact can be quality assurance for me, it can be who, who, people who bring me in can be from quality assurance. They might be for maintenance. They might be from operations, mm-hmm. but re- regardless of that, you, you just need to, 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 to try and quickly figure out who the key people are around the smokehouses. A maintenance guy that has specialty training in that area, quality assurance people that, that do a lot of work in that area or operations people, a cook room supervisor, you know, whoever's running the show, the plant manager may be very involved in cooking, but they may not be. They may be more a packaging person or whatever. So, but you, you try and identify who's there, but but just make sure that it's always collaborative. We have to have an opening meeting with all the groups involved mm-hmm. and then and then keep people informed as you go through the project. And, you know, friction is 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 broken down by communication, and but good communication is really hard. So it has to be a collaborative process. So really just to very simply put it to you, I mean, just, let's just look at a, a typical week. So I would travel on Monday. I'd be in the plant on Tuesday. Tuesday, we'd have an opening meeting with all those people involved. And that generally will happen no matter what, even if there's disagreement on how to solve a particular problem we might be working on, um, they'll, people will want to be involved. So having the opening meeting is, is normally pretty easy. And at that point, you, you can have a discussion on what it is, the, the problem you're trying to solve, and you can get an idea of how different people feel for that. But 
what I do to kind of cut through all that stuff is, you know, you can argue with me, but you can't really argue with data. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to tell people how to solve the problem right out of the gate. I might have some ideas that we're going to discuss, but we're going to design some tests so we can gather baseline data to figure out where our environment is. So most of Tuesday will be spent uh, diagnosing the problem, learning what the problem is, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what, 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 what all is involved in it. And then second, gather some data so we've got a baseline on where, where everything stands right now. So I don't make changes right out of the gate because that would be foolish. You, you want to learn what's going on first before you, you try and make changes. And so we gather baseline data, whatever the process is, on Tuesday then Wednesday, we take a look at the data, and I sit down again with that same group and have a collaborative discussion with them mm-hmm. for two reasons. One is it keeps everybody involved, but the second thing is it helps me brainstorm too. I mean, it's, it's startling to me how you, you might be an expert in your field, and you might be looked to as the source of knowledge for that area, but how much I learn from presenting the data back to this group and then brainstorming what all happened mm-hmm. so, so, that, so that I can come up with a better solution as a group with them than I would on my own. Over and over again, that happens. And so you just learn from that kind of experience that collaboration helps you too. Not just, it's not just like you're, you're, you're going to, to present them with the solutions. You're actually going to discuss the possible solutions. And then, then it becomes very collaborative. Mm-hmm. Everybody's involved, um, literally involved. I mean, it's not just window dressing. You really do need their input. And so you, they know their products better than you do. You just got there uh, the day before. So mm-hmm. um, they, they, so you go through that collaborative process, and then that helps put together some tests that you can run on a Wednesday. And then hopefully Thursday, you either have solved the problem, which is strange. You, you might solve a problem in three days that's been existing in that plant for, for decades. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not that crazy to do that. Right. Um, or, or even just, just uh, uh, something that happened a few months ago, you can solve it very quickly because you've identified the right variables and you've made the right adjustments. Um, or on Thursday, you'll be testing you know, the first step, which might be a process that they might carry forward after that. To, to 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 address the problem it might take longer than than, than that to solve um, but at least you'll take the first steps that day and see if your solutions are uh, have some promise or not and and and, and then the, the, ultimately and you hear this over and over again but it's really true the data shows the way you know you'll you'll mm-hmm. you'll find through the baseline data you collect early in the week to the the potential solutions that you test later in the week that that the data will will, will show you the way and if you're lucky you'll hit a home run um, if you're not lucky, at least you'll hit a single and, and, you know, they'll be able to, to, to keep the game going and, and ultimately get to home, mm-hmm. you know, with some further testing. Absolutely. Love that. I mean, I think that's, that's spot on, bring it to the data and then foster that collaborative mindset so that everybody on the team is participating and troubleshooting and working together. Um, that's, that's really, really inspiring when you see that happen too, at a facility, you feel like you're just a I mean, in my personal experience, I feel like just a facilitator and they already had the knowledge. Yeah. I much prefer yeah. that than when you go into a place and they say, okay, expert, here's everything we know, go solve it. <laughs> well, it's a good, yes. it's a good way to look at it as a facilitator. And, mm-hmm. and that most often it's very smart people, but they're, they're, they're not measuring the right thing. It's mm-hmm. like trying to drive a car without a speedometer. Right. You could, you can get some idea how fast you're going and do some judgment, but you'll never have any precision and you'll never be consistent unless you put a speedometer in there so you can see measure literally how fast you're going mm-hmm. and and really that's a lot of times where i come in even beyond being a facilitator i'm actually measuring the things that need to be measured right and 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 also bringing an understanding of what's important if you don't understand that the moisture in the product comes to the surface and evaporates at the wet bulb temperature for example you'll you'll never really understand of how to be able to measure when the product is getting dry which is really important for smoke color development preventing greasing improving sliceability, improving yields all the things that we talked about 
are all impacted by how fast the surface is getting dry and at what point in the process it's getting dry. And so by measuring, so, so what I do is I measure not just those four variables, dryable, wet bulbs, uh, uh, air velocity, and time. I also measure the core temperature of the product, which everybody else measures. But what I learned in graduate school and I've carried forward and, and what's often new to people is to measure the surface temperature of the product. Mm -hmm. Because if you measure the surface temperature and you compare that with the wet bulb temperature, you can see whether the product is wet or dry. So if the surface temperature is below the wet bulb, we know that it's wet. If it's above the wet bulb, we know that it's dry. Now, a big part of our industry, still to this day, despite my best efforts, uses dry bulb and wet bulb to calculate relative humidity. Right. Well, relative humidity is, is valuable if you're trying to dry something to a particular water activity, but that's usually not what we're trying to do. I mean, it is sometimes, right, with snack sticks and dry sausage, but in most cases, we're just trying to either keep the surface moist for smoke absorption to maximize smoke absorption, or we're trying to dry the product to develop small color. And you can tell where that's happening by measuring the surface temperature of the meeting, comparing it with a wet bulb. If, mm -hmm. it's, if the surface is still wet, it's going to be at or below the wet bulb temperature. Once it dries, it'll break above the wet bulb temperature. And once it dries, you get uh, smoke color to form. You get casing, adhe casing adhesion in the case of a fibrous casing product. Mm -hmm. you, you get skin development. Um, and you, but you also start to lose yield. So you want it to dry at the last possible minute to develop color. Mm -hmm. um, but excessive drying, well, and actually drying is also key to preventing uh, um, greasing because the, the trap the um, grease in there. Yeah. The, the, when you, because moisture is a gel inhibitor, you want to dry off the moisture to form a firm gel that traps the grease and mm -hmm. traps, traps the fat and, and prevents it from greasing out. Mm -hmm. But if you dry too much, you can cause peeling problems for a cellulose casing product. You can cause splitting for fibrous casing product. Um, you can cause excessive skin development, or you can cause netting adhesion for something that's a peeled net, which would be bad. So the drying might be good or bad, depending on what you're trying to do. But the important thing is to know when it's happening. And, and, and you do that by measuring surface temperature. And if all the people in the room have never measured surface temperature before, then how could they ever get it right? Yeah. Well, through, through extensive trial and error, which is a very painful way to learn. So if you can measure those things, show the data, I mean, literally on Wednesday, you show the data that you collected on Tuesday. Now they see, okay, that's what's happening. That's why that happened. And sometimes it's, it's extremely eye-opening for them. Mm -hmm. These are veteran people that have spent lots of time working on this it, it, and, and they know their products very well. They know their ovens very well, but now you're collecting data in such a way that they, now they've got a speedometer. Now they can tell that they're going exactly 70 miles an hour and not it eliminates a lot of the guesswork. Yeah. These old habits die hard and internal temperature and the geometric center of the product has always been our target for lethality. And it's, it's well, and that's right. That's for food safety, right? But yeah. you've got food safety, quality and production objectives. And so if you can measure surface temperature, um, and we'll talk in, in, a, in a minute about some of the work that you and I've done on, on uh, with USDA and desiccation and that. But mm -hmm. if you can measure surface temperature, that helps you with the quality specifications. It helps you with production. But it's uh, but core temperature is always measured because food safety is our top line priority. Everybody's going to measure the core temperature um, because you have to for 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 making sure you've reached that threshold of food safety. And there's a lot of people that are paid to do nothing but check on those that temperature data and make sure the temperature data is correct. Rightfully so. There should be a lot of attention paid to that. Um, but the production goals and the quality goals, of course, are key to, 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 to the profitability of the company um, and the success of the products, right? If you can meet the quality specifications or tighten those up and, and meet them more successfully, higher rate of first pass number one product. And if you can solve peeling problems and greasing problems, you've got higher productivity. If you can speed up the belt, you've got more productivity. You can get higher yields. You, you've got more productivity. So all those things come into play for the quality and, and the production side. And, 
And there's just, there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, and that's a lot of times where the collaboration occurs. They, they've got food safety covered. Um, the oven validates okay. The, 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 the process is lethal. They've got lots of people there paying attention to that, recording that, taking temperatures and that sort of thing. But um, a lot of times then what the projects I end up working on are more trying to solve troubleshoot defects, solve problems, or, or just get more smoke flavor, more smoke color, you know, some kind of a differentiation aspect or just increase yields uh, or solve this peeling problem that we've had, you know, something that's more on the quality and productivity side. Part of what you're doing, I think, has been try to um, elevate this concept of surface temperature measurement and the hydrated surface lethality phenomenon. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, so the, 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 the issue is, and, and, and rightfully, there's attention being paid to the effect of surface desiccation on survival of, of pathogens. The, the surface lethality for, for the different pathogens, and I'll talk about salmonella specifically because that's where most of the work's being done because that's, that's the, the organism that's targeted in Appendix A, in the USDA Appendix A. Um, once salmonella is desiccated, and this is also true of listeria and other products too, or other products, other pathogens, the, once they're desiccated, they're much harder to kill. And so there's been a lot of research that's been within the meat industry, such as Goodfellow and Brown, or outside of the industry, such as Gruzdev, that's shown over and over again that once the, the bacteria are desiccated, they're much, much harder to kill than if they, they're hydrated. In other words, they're in their natural hydrated state. Um, so once they've been dehydrated, they're much harder to kill. So the concern is then that if you do have processes that dry the surface of the product, which we do on purpose for developing color or, or um, skin or sliceability and, and, or preventing greasing and so on, that those though the back there might be bacteria there that would survive, and this was brought out first by the 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 um, really uh, paper well the paper that was written by Goodfellow and Brown, which is really a, a core um, piece of food safety research that that Appendix A is actually based on. And when they cooked roast beef, now this was back in 1978, when they cooked roast beef to low temperatures, they found that the salmonella that survived, the salmonella that survived, had survived on the surface, and that's been been shown again in, in other studies that, that, that that's a problem. And, and so this idea of desiccation came out. That also caused a number of uh, food safety outbreaks in beef jerky in the early 2000s. There was a number of outbreaks of salmonellosis that came from uh, salmonella that dried on the surface. So there was a lot of work done by at University of Wisconsin, by at the time Dennis Beakey, and, and, and since then by Kathy Glass and Jeff Sindelar um, to, to, to work on this. And I've collaborated with University of Wisconsin. Uh, um, there was other work done at, at uh, Montana State and Kansas State to show this effect of, of desiccation and, and, and it is much more difficult to kill the salmonella once they've been dried. So um, I was, I've been collaborating with the University of Wisconsin to try and figure this out and, and then within the working group at, uh, among the different um, people that are on the, the working group in this area and also um, you know presenting some of these results to, to USDA to talk about how these could be incorporated into Appendix A. So, but the bottom line is this, that in order to make sure that you've, that you've got surface lethality on the meat products of, of a seven log kill of salmonella, that you need to make sure that, 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 that the salmonella are heated to a lethal temperature and that they're hydrated when you get there. And if they're not, if they get to a lethal temperature, but they're desiccated, now you, you, you may not have killed them. And that's the problem. So, the humidity guidelines in Appendix A are, are, have a lot of gaps in them. And, and, you know, they were designed back in 1978 and they were intended for roast beef. They've since been applied to a lot of different products. And the issue came, that came into play very vividly was 
um, the humidity requirements that, that are written into Appendix A that, that really don't work for impingement ovens, for example. Impingement ovens, you know, you, your dry bulb temperature will typically be four to 500 degrees. Uh, the wet bulb temperature would be, be 180 to 200, which gives you a relative humidity of, of single digits, four to five percent relative humidity, two percent relative humidity, very, very low relative humidities. And that didn't really fit with the Appendix A. So what, what we were working on at, at Univers University of Wisconsin is, is this concept of hydrated surface lethality. And so the way that works is very simple. You, you measure the surface temperature of the product. And as long as that surface temperature achieves a lethal time temperature combination before it exceeds the wet bulb temperature, then, then you can be confident that process is lethal. So that would be considered a validated process under hydrated surface lethality. I'll say that again, just so that's clear. The surface temperature needs to achieve a lethal time temperature combination before it exceeds the wet bulb. Because once it exceeds the wet bulb, it might be dry and there could be desiccated salmonella. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it turns out it's fairly, it's a fairly conservative approach, but it's, it's very easy to, to validate, um, very easy to measure. So if, if you think about that, then if you, if you're trying to cook product, let's say it's an impingement oven, you're cooking a, a chicken tenders to 175 degrees. You just want to make sure that the, that the surface, that the wet bulb temperature is set above 175. So if you set your wet bulb temperature, let's say at 190, which would be very common to have a wet bulb temperature of 190, dry bulb temperature, let's say 450. Now your surface temperature is going to get up to 190. Well, that's a lethal temperature. Mm -hmm. So by definition, then before it exceeds 190, you'll be lethal and you'll still be hydrated. So it would meet the criteria for hydrated surface lethality. That's the, that's the concept. Kill the pathogens first using moist heating. And then you can worry about your color development, bite, yeah. peelability, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. So it goes back to that same thing, food safety threshold first, mm -hmm. followed by quality and, and production. And once the surface exceeds 190, that's when drying occurs because mm -hmm. that's when it gets dry. And so you can go through Mayar browning. So you've got your surface lethality. You can check that box and now you can do your browning uh, to develop flavor and color. As we speak now in 2019, the, the big uh, trend is to go to plant-based um, meat analogs or meat alternative protein products that are meant to simulate hamburgers, hot dogs, etc. you name it. Any thoughts on that in terms of attaining lethality against salmonella and other pathogens? Well, you'd still have the same mm -hmm. principles true. You need to have the, the, the salmonella don't care, right? They're, they're going to have to be hydrated before um, when they achieve a lethal temperature. So if you dry them and they're on a, a, a vegetable-based platform or you dry them and they're on a meat-based product, they're, they're, they're still going to um, have the same situation where you can have a problem with desiccated bacteria surviving. Um, the issues I've seen in doing work on, on the alternative type products has mostly been the, the temperatures that are cooked to and, and the gel formation is very much different. And the firmness and texture are affected a lot by the cooking and the cooking process has to be much different to, to, get, um, to get the texture and get products to gel and so on. So a lot of the quality things, we're going to have to learn a lot more about the quality aspects and how the cooking process affects them because, of course, this, these products act quite differently hmm. than meat. From a food safety standpoint, the, the temperatures should still be there. The time temperature combination should be very similar. Um, and, and the way to, to determine whether it's desiccated or not is, once again, to develop a method of measuring surface temperature so you can compare it with a wet bulb. I mean, in the end, it's still a, a heat mass transfer product mm -hmm. or phenomenon where the, the moisture is evaporating from the product, whether it's meat or, or plant-based, yeah. and that's going to happen at the wet bulb temperature. So the thermodynamics 
underlying thermodynamics are the same, but they'll act differently because the product acts differently and the texture changes at, 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 at different temperatures and, and the dryness happens differently. Skin development, uh, gel formation, all those things happen differently. Yeah, heat and moisture transfer within the matrix of the plant-based product might be a little different. But yeah, it should be, it would be very different. And of course, color formation is different. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've learned so much about the, all the, everything we've learned on the meat side about gel formation, it, it, you know, has come from myosin and, and, you know, myofibrillar proteins. And, and now you're talking about other types of proteins. Mm-hmm. So the gel formation, the rate of gel formation is going to be different. Um, and the, and also dryness and color development. What we know about Bayard Browning for meat is, is not necessarily going to work for, for those types of products, smoke absorption, smoke color development. Wow. Um, just when you thought business might be uh, plateauing for a while and giving you a breather, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to be twice as busy as you've been. Now, we, we, we never stop learning. Yeah. And, and of course the, the basic principles are going to have to be learned over again. Now, keep in mind, some of this has been learned in other industries, right? Mm-hmm. So, so gel formation of, of soy proteins, somebody has studied that. It's just it's mm-hmm. not, it's not, if it's something you and I haven't worked on or the, the, the core parts of our industry haven't worked on. We, we just have to try and expand, you know, cast our net wider and find other sources of research. Yeah. Pea protein, chickpea, lentils. I mean, there's probably lots and lots of research that needs to be done to understand that. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully we can find sources for that and, and try and come up to speed very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, some of it's known by the people that produce those products. So there's, and I think also we can, we can seek out other parts of the world where those proteins have been used more commonly in the past. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the U.S. market is, is the U.S. market. And, of course, it's, it's, it, there's myriad products made and there's all kinds of knowledge here. But if you're trying to find things, that, 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 uh, learn things about gel formation in, in, in plant-based proteins, there's plenty of parts of the world that have used those more extensively than the U.S. has. And so I think we can tap into that for, for uh, education, too. Yeah, good point. Bob, um, just stepping back, taking a bigger picture view of things, you – you are a food safety technology, meat technology professional, but you're also a consumer, and um, you, I'm sure you follow these uh, recall notices and outbreaks. What are your thoughts on the big picture of food safety and technology in, I guess, globally? And um, you know, what do you think? Where do you think these are headed? Well, the if you look at the numbers for you know, listeria just is specifically well, salmonella too, that there's those two pathogens that are found in processed meats that the numbers continue to trend downward. Um, you know, if, if you look at, at the, 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 the trend on those particular numbers, they were, they were much higher uh, 20 years ago than they are now. And so that's the credit to what we've learned about process lethality and also the, the, the cleanability and, mm-hmm. and, and the focus on sanitary design of equipment and, and the, the keeping ready areas clean and, and so on. The challenge we always have is, is that uh, the, our kill step, this cooking step that we're talking about today is in the middle of the process for most processes because, and then you have to keep everything really, really clean after that. So the chillers, the packaging equipment, slicing equipment, you know, all the things that happen after that have to be kept, you know, operating room clean, mm-hmm. which is very difficult to do. And, and because that's very difficult to do, you know, we've pushed, incidence of listeria in ready meats down to something like half a percent or 0.4 percent. Um, but it seems to be sort of stuck there. It's been stuck there for four or five years. It's not really declining anymore. So it, 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 it sort of makes you think that are there, can we figure out and are there more ways to do the final cook in the package? Are there more products that we could cook in the package? Mm-hmm. Um, can we smoke the meat ahead of time, which is typically what it's done anyway, 
and then put it in the package hot and do the final cooking in the package? Are there more of those types of technologies that we can use? And for some products where that's not possible, like sliced meats, for example, I don't know how you would do that. Um, you know, I think the prevalence of high pressure pasteurization and other types of in-package treatments uh, are, has to expand because you, you're going to want to, you know, obviously you'd love to push the incidence of listeria and phenomies down to zero. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's actually possible, but it would be, it would be cool to just figure out what's going to be the next step. Cause we've, we've been in that 0.4.5% range just based on USDA data f- for, oh, I don't know, at least five or six years. And, and, and it kind of makes you wonder what the next step is. Yeah. Um, to push that down. Great point. I mean, as we speak, this is September 2019, and there's an ongoing Listeria monocytogenes outbreak in the U.S. reported by CDC, and we don't know the source yet. We're still waiting with bated breath to hear yeah. what's next. What is the epi data showing? So, to your yeah, point, they haven't gone away, and and mm-hmm. it's and it's uh, and you think about what it takes to get that kind of an outbreak. It, I mean, that's that's a a, a lot of listeria that slipped through the cracks somehow mm-hmm. and um so it, it continues to vex us right it just it doesn't doesn't go away and and you every i don't know what what the incidence rate is but but every so often we we have another outbreak and and you know something has happened post cook for, for the most part our cooking processes are pretty solid i mean mm-hmm. we're, people are very good at maintaining yeah. those and watching them and you don't yeah and fortunately cooking has been pretty foolproof i mean it's it's it was invented in 1852 by Louis Pasteur and it still works today. So, <laughs> you know, that's, it's, a uh, it's awesome how effective cooking is yeah. as a, as a, as an antimicrobial technology. And, and so if we do it right, it's, 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 it's a, it's a pretty foolproof. Um, and of course, you know, mistakes can be made and so on, but, but the, but still for the most part, you, you can count on it. Um, so it would be, it would be cool if we could do more of the final cook in the final package. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be, you know, it's more like canning, right? Where mm-hmm. nobody, nobody in the canning business tries to be really, really clean to put it in the can and then, and then just seals the can and, and ships it refrigerated, right? They always put it through a retort before they ship it in. So how can we try and duplicate that in the refrigerated meats area and um, some, on and more products? Yeah, more and more are. And there's still, you know, there still are food safety and quality um, factors to consider. You still have to chill the product down quickly. You still have to yeah. maintain a uh, cold chain during distribution and, and display and home storage and so forth. But yeah, that's a good point. So yeah. Oh, if our, if our only goal was food safety, we would can everything. Right. <laughs> and, but that's obviously that's, that's not where the market is. And so we, yeah. we need to figure out how to make refrigerated meat safely too. Indeed. Well, I really appreciate your time, Bob. It's been very informative and, and interesting. And thank you again. Um, any final thoughts? Well, one one thing that that uh, you know, I've I've been collaborating a lot with the University of Wisconsin, and one thing that comes to mind, and I see in working with USDA too, is mm-hmm. there's there's uh, is the work on challenge studies. Challenge studies are are, are a really awesome tool, mm-hmm. but they're very expensive and cumbersome. And and so one final thought of, of, of an area I'd like to see more work on and I'd like to collaborate on is, is developing um, more efficient, more useful models for determining process lethality. Mm-hmm. Right now we have the, the NAMI spreadsheet, which is an awesome tool, but it's, it's sort of crude and, and um, a little bit laborious. There's a lot of manual labor to, to, to get the, that thing to work. Once, once you've collected the data, your job is, is, is not even close to done. There's a lot of work to do to try and, and to try and to actually get the net, the numbers into the model and, and, and then, get the get the numbers to come out of the model that makes sense so 
the one final thought I had is you know, from, from my perspective, having been in this industry a long time, it would be super cool to have some kind of a, of a tool that you could use that would make it easier to model multiple different cooking processes and look at the lethality among these different cooking processes and make sure that we've got the lethality that there needs to be there. I mean, the NAMI spreadsheet is a, is a really nice step in the right direction, but it'd be awesome to see more work done in that area. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think that would be a very powerful way to give the tools to the to the people that need it on a day-to-day basis. I know that there are some options out there like Combase that does allow um, yeah. you know, lethality, but not incorporating the parameters you've you've uh, yeah. enumerated on the and one one last thing if, if we if we still have a little time mm-hmm. the, sure um that to me would be one piece of what i think is more broadly uh, i would like to see an industry effort to develop what what i would call a food safety handbook hmm. we try and use appendix a and appendix b we haven't talked about today but about cooling and those are developed by the government but they're only updated every 20 years or so which is if you think about it, that's kind of nuts it should be a living actively uh, developed process and couldn't the industry develop a food safety handbook you know sort of analogous to like dairy 3a which is not a government program but it's a, it's a highly recognized um set of standards for mm-hmm. sanitary design couldn't we do something like that for thermal processing both on the cooking and cooling side that the industry would 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 say fund universities to to, to do this and develop a food safety handbook that would give people guidelines on how to cook things safely and how to chill things safely it would be a highly respected, recognized standard, but it would be um, essentially administered by universities and, let's say, funded by industry. And wouldn't that be a better way to do it than sort of relying on the, the, this, this just kind of uh, hodgepodge of literature and articles <laughs> and appendix A and appendix B, you know, and yes. all kind of tied together? Yes. Um, that, that's that's broadly speaking, that's one thing that I would, I would love to see done and, and I would love to participate or support or work on is, is a, a, something like that where we could take everything we've learned about thermodynamics and, and, and the variables involved and hydrated surface lethality and, 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 and beyond that and, and dump all that into to, to a food safety handbook. And then on the chilling side to collect all the best uh, literature and put it into a form that people could, could readily tap into and use. Because um, uh, this idea that people are going to pour through numerous uh, academic articles i think that that, i mean that's that's just very very difficult to do and it's it's very inefficient right there'd be more efficient ways to do it and some kind of a food safety or food industry handbook on food safety food safety handbook that was that was administered by academics so it would have a a high level of a degree of 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 um scholarly respectability and 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 uh, but then be funded by industry would be a would be an awesome thing for the industry to have. It's an interesting concept. It definitely, I think funding is where that would, what would become a. You know, that's the question: who who could provide the funding for that type of a? Yeah, um, and I think there's models to look for though. You've got Dairy Three A mm-hmm. um, on the electrical side. You've got UL standards on the fire side. There's there's industry. There's or insurance. There's there's I think there's a lot of models to look for if we really looked outside of where we are. That, that we're of ways of funding it through either subscriptions or some other sort of funding mechanism and then how it can be administered so that it is beyond reproach. And it's, it's a, you know, a highly rec- recognized standard, mm-hmm. much like dairy three a or, or, or UL on the electrical side or some of the other standards. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's if, if I, um, you know, if, if, 
if there's time for all of us to get together, we should we should explore that more. We should discuss it with our academic colleagues and see if we can get a critical mass together to yeah. get this idea forward and, and see well, who can it, pick it, it up. Seems it, yeah, it seems achievable. And it's, it's what, what made me think about it a lot more was the working group that you and I are participating in, because that's been such an effective, highly collaborative group. Mm-hmm. And then you think, geez, we're really not that far away from doing something like this. And, and then you'd have you'd have some standards that people could use in their hassle plans and they, they could just tap into them and they could, they could be secure that they were going to work, that they, mm-hmm. um, they were, that they were right because, because you would have the leaders in the industry that you have all the, all the best brains working on it, making sure that it was going to work. And, and I, it was, that's really that, that working group was what made me think that, that, mm-hmm. that we could actually put something like that together. Yeah. So I think it would be something to at least brainstorm a little bit and see if we can, figure out a way to give it a go yeah definitely a need for something like that i noticed how non-meat companies are citing appendix a and appendix b of the usda fsis for meat and poultry products so they they don't really have a good source and i've seen some people non-meat again citing the fda fisheries guidance document on cooking lethality temperatures and just yeah that's not the right document to cite that's not the correct scientific parameters unless you're making a seafood a cooked seafood product yeah so yeah yeah and if you if you were trying to do sanitary design you could safely tap into dairy 3a and and Mm -hmm. it would give you the right kind of guidance and i think i think we can do the same thing with 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 uh thermal processing too yeah excellent idea well we'll see where that goes Um, all right but i really appreciate your time how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more about uh hansen tech yeah so um well, LinkedIn is, is a, my contact information is on LinkedIn and the description of my company and, and, and what I do. That's probably the primary source of, of just background information on me and what I do. And, um, and, and, and then, of course, you can direct contact anytime. My, my cell phone is 913-709-7566. And my email, if people prefer email, is bob.hanson at hansontech.net. Excellent. Um, Great. And all that's in LinkedIn. If you if you people can usually get into LinkedIn, that's a great source of, of background information for people. All right. Great. Well, I'm hopeful that you will get some some contacts so that people can get their cook processes just right. So thank you again well, for your time. I really it's, appreciate it's, it. It's fascinating me for thirty something years. So <laughs> so uh hopefully that shows in 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 and obviously it's it's a it's it's a passion for me. Mm, good. Good stuff. All right. Thank you so much, Bob. Appreciate it. All right. Good. Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Aetna Food Safety Podcast, where leading minds in food safety share insights. You can find more information about Aetna Consulting Group at aetnaconsulting.com. Our handle on social media is at Aetna Food Safety. Please follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Anchor, or whatever your podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to leave us a review. Until next time, think safe food.